for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode and on the next, we're going to take a little bit of break from the series that we're going through on the doctrines of grace because I had the privilege to interview uh, Dr. Graham Oppie. Now, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Oppie is, Dr. Oppie is professor of philosophy at Monash University, where he's currently director of the philosophy graduate program. He's also the chief executive officer of the Australian Association of Philosophy. His main field of research is philosophy of religion, and in this field he has authored uh, the following books. He's written uh, The Onological Arguments and Belief in God, Arguing About Gods, Philosophical Perspectives on Infinity, Reading Philosophy of Religion, <clears throat> The Best Argument Against God, Reinventing Philosophy of Religion, and Describing Gods, an Investigation of Divine Attributes. He is also the editor of the Handbook of Contemporary Philosophy of Religion uh, and with uh, Nick Trakakis, uh, The History of Western Philosophy of Religion, which is a huge, I think it's a five-volume series. Uh, also with Nick Trakakis, he's edited a number of books about the history of philosophy in Australia and New Zealand. Forthcoming, he's edited works in philosophy of religion, include a volume of new essays on ontological arguments, a companion to atheism and philosophy, and again with Nick Trakakis, some volumes on philosophies of religion. Now, uh, Dr. Graham will also make mention of some other works that he's in the process uh, of, of contributing to. Uh, specifically one uh, that some of uh, you in, in my audience will appreciate. Uh, he's contributing uh, a chapter on the relationship uh, between philosophy and religion in one of those multi-views uh, series. Um, and some of the other authors uh, on there uh, he'll, he'll make mention of. I'll, I'll keep it secret for now, um, but you will definitely recognize some of the names that he mentions in there. Um, this episode is going to actually be divided among two episodes. We had a great long discussion. Uh, also, I wanted to make note... Um, Dr. Oppie was suffering from a little bit of a cold, um, so there there might be some some pauses where he's um, taking a drink, uh, or or if it sounds a little choppy, I've I've cut it out a couple places where he um, where he was coughing a little bit, but he was he was gracious enough to continue the interview uh, with me even though uh, despite being under the weather. So um, this has been a really interesting discussion with Dr. Oppie. Uh, who is, is definitely, in my view, one of uh, the leading uh, atheist uh, philosophers, if not the leading uh, atheist philosopher, and definitely one of the leading philosophers, bar none, no matter the religion, uh, within the specifically the field of philosophy of religion. Uh, the purpose of this episode, I make mention of it in the dialogue, but the purpose of this episode isn't necessarily for me to debate with Dr. Oppie. I'm not trying to offer uh, lots of counterpoints or rebuttals or anything like that. It's really just uh, an exploratory episode of his of his views and some of his work to really introduce it to uh, my audience. Sometimes we get so tired and bogged down and dealing uh, with some of the new atheists online uh, that I, I think it's a really helpful reminder uh, to see that there are some really uh, robust thinkers out there, even though I ultimately uh, disagree with him on, on on much of what he what he writes and what he works, he he is an interesting thinker 
who we should take uh, as a challenging voice to really um, challenge our positions and help us become stronger thinkers and better thinkers and ultimately uh, better Christians in that sense as, as God uh, is interested in us being good and sound thinkers. So uh, thank you again for joining us on this episode and enjoy the show. So, Dr. Oppie, thank you so much for joining me here on the Freethinker podcast. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you, you coming on. Uh, I know a lot of people are excited to have you here, um, so I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your, your busy, hot day uh, down there. Um, why don't you start off by telling us just a little bit about um, you personally, uh, kind of your background, um, upbringing, maybe educational background for some of my audience uh, who might not be familiar with you and your work. Okay, so I'm sixth generation Australian, I think. Uh, the Oppies came from Cornwall. Oh, okay. And at the top, there were gold rushes in California and Australia at about the same time. And some went to California, some came to Australia. They're, they were very small landowners. They had a very small farm and it wasn't big enough to support all of the members of the family so um so that's the kind of very there are not a lot of opiates and but there are quite a few in ohio and there are quite a few in australia um so the the oppies well in fact all of my so so if you go back to my great great grandparents they're all from southern england as it turns out they they sort of all trace back there um so that's the kind of background. Uh, the Oppies were Methodists, uh, so my parents were both Methodists and they were both Sunday school teachers and at one point my father wanted to be a preacher. He wanted to be a, a preacher in the Methodist church. Uh, as they got older, I think my mother's faith never really waned. Uh, she remained a believer up until she died. Uh my father was a bit different after my... So one thing that happened in Australia was that the Uniting Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Congregationalists and a few other churches joined together to form the Uniting Church mm-hmm. in the early 70s. And for a lot of people, that then became an obstacle to going to church. And I think for my father, over time, it became more and more of an obstacle. Uh, but it wasn't just that. And he seemed to... I don't know, his beliefs didn't stick with him, I don't think, uh, in the same way that they start with my mother. Uh, if you go back in the generations, uh, there are some quite devout people. So my grandmother uh, was very active in the Bible Society in 
Australia. So that's part of that sort of family background. I stopped, so I was brought up and went to Sunday school. I stopped believing when I was about 12, 12 or 13. I thought about things for a while on my own, maybe three or four months. Uh, and then after that, I started reading stuff, but I'd already made up my mind yeah. um, about what I thought. Uh, when I was at school, I loved arguing with people <laughs> about about religion. Uh, I enrolled in medicine when I left school. So at school, I studied sciences mainly. I was all right at English, but uh, I and in my final year, I studied maths, physics, chemistry. Um, and I spent my first year of medicine avoiding lectures and reading philosophy. So it kind of occurred to me that I probably made a bad choice. Uh, and so then I enrolled in a um, Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts, on, with a major in maths and major in philosophy, minor in physics. And... Uh, uh, sequence in history and philosophy of science. So that kind of indicates the things that I was really interested in. Uh, I was lucky enough to get into graduate school. I went to Princeton, did a PhD on philosophy of language. And when I came back, I was I got married just before I went. And my wife got some years leave without pay from public service in Australia. We came back and went to Canberra where most public service is. And I was unemployed. And at the ANU... Uh, and I then came up to teach a course in philosophy of religion, and they asked me, could I do it? And I said, yes. And at that point, I had I had nothing about philosophy of religion. Right? I'd studied one subject as an undergraduate with Bruce Langtree mm-hmm. that was sort of on, well, it was on probability theory and philosophy of religion, so it was Hume on miracles and um, arguments for design. Uh, in the course of that semester, I taught myself a lot about philosophy of religion, and I started publishing things. Uh, I guess at that point it wasn't really a foregone conclusion I'd end up doing philosophy of religion, but I, on a more or less on a whim, I applied um, for a postdoc, a, a nationally funded postdoc, and I said that I would work on reformed epistemology. And oh. to the amazement of everybody, I was awarded the postdoc, and because I because of the way I operate, I thought, well, the first thing I'll do is I'll write about the ontological argument. That was as far as I got. Yeah. So my study of reformed epistemology ended at that point, but I did have a book on ontological arguments. And so that was 1996, and since then I've, um, I've worked mostly in philosophy of religion, though I do publish sometimes in other areas. Uh, I've been at Monash for the last 20 years, and... Uh, I teach mostly in philosophy of religion. I have a course called God, Freedom and Evil, which is on the arguments, and a course called Philosophy of Religion, which is on epistemology of religious belief, um, religious pluralism and divine attributes. So they're topics that I talk about. Recently I've been teaching a course in metaphysics. I've also taught logic epistemology and all kinds of other things, but the majority of my teaching is also philosophy of religion. That's that's that that's actually really interesting that I mean you're you're obviously mostly well known in philosophy of religion and, and for you know not to not to overly flatter you and butter you up or anything, but uh, I mean you are you are quite quite easily one of the leading uh, one of the leading atheist thinkers, if not one of the leading just 
philosophers of religion uh, full stop. So hopefully um, this will be a good introduction uh, for my audience to really what uh, one of the, the leading scholars uh, on the issues today. So um, like I said, I, I appreciate it. It's, it's interesting that it was that it was almost almost on a whim that got you into into the discipline. And yeah. then it's been you've been such a profound uh, and prolific writer and thinker in the area. Yeah, so I think life's full of accidents. Actually. <laughs> uh, and I mean, there's a, there's a series of things, and I'd always been interested in um, philosophy of religion. So, in my first year, the very first essay that I wrote was on Descartes' ontological argument. Uh, but it's just that the opportunity didn't come up, and I yeah. never really thought about um, pursuing philosophy of religion until the opportunity presented itself. And as I said, even then, having taught the course, it was no sure thing that I wouldn't just go on and work in metaphysics and philosophy of science, philosophy of language, other things I was interested in. Well, I'm, 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 I'm glad you found your way in. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely been beneficial for me reading a lot of your work and, and, and challenging in a lot of ways. So I uh, appreciate that. Um, what, have, what are some of your current uh, writing topics, your, your current um, work that you're working on um, right now? Okay, so there's a few things. Uh, I've been working on a chapter on ontological arguments for a textbook that'll be coming out fairly soon, so I'm just contributing. I know all of the things I'm going to mention are I'm contributing a chapter to a, a larger project. The next thing that I'm going to be working on probably is a chapter on Pascal's wager. I've got um, an invitation to this. There'll be a new book on of a book of new essays on Pascal's Wager that Cambridge will be publishing. It's being edited by Paul Arthur and, oh dear, I've forgotten the other person. Uh, that's terrible. Uh, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but anyway, so there'll be a new book of essays and I'm going to write something about infinity and Pascal's Wager, but really what I'm going to look at is Paul's uh, attempt to circumvent the many-gods objection. So I think the most interesting stuff that's been written on Pascal's Wager in the last decade or so is Paul's work trying to um, defeat the many gods objections. So I want to say something about that. So that's the second thing. Third thing, I have a, a cooperative project. There's uh, one of those four views on books. It's on the relationship between Christianity and philosophy. The other contributors are Tim McGrew, Paul Moser and Scott Oliphant. And we're, we're pretty much to the end of that. So I've just written my response to their first contributions and all of that's due, <coughs> all of that's due uh, mid-January and then we'll be, there'll be one more write of, uh, round of writing as we respond to what the others have said. Uh, is that, is that um, put out by InterVarsity? I know InterVarsity uh, does a lot of the multi-views. So is it Zondervan? Or Zondervan. That Zondervan, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, there's another thing. I can't remember who I'm doing this for. On the future of Christianity. And there's another uh, textbook, which is going to be a, a bunch of dialogues and uh, Matthew Flanagan and I are going to be going at it on moral arguments. So that's so. There's 
a bunch of things. I usually have a few things going at once. And these days, I spend a lot of... I don't write so many journal articles anymore. I write a lot of stuff that's invited to mm-hmm. for textbooks and, um, you know, handbooks and that kind of thing. Right. Um, now, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why I asked you on is um, because not, not only because you're, you know, uh, an, an eminent thinker in this field, but you're also, um, I mean, you you come widely recommended. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard, uh, you know, William Lane Craig just calls you, he calls you scary smart. <laughs> um, you're just, you're just uh, so smart. But you also, I, I mean, you're you're a charitable thinker. I mean, you're you're someone that is interested in having, you know, open and honest dialogue. Um, something to kind of you know further the discussion um, uh, as opposed to just trying to shut down the discussion or something like that. So um, and, and and recently, well, I, I guess not too recently anymore, but you moderated a dialogue um, between William Lane Craig and Lawrence Krauss. Now I'm not trying to put you in the hot seat and say you know who won or anything like that, um, but uh, a lot of a lot of people have wondered why you know you you were the moderator and not the the, the opposing view um, is, is that is that something that that's going to be in the works um, is that you know a possibility um, okay so so I was invited to be the speaker at that event before they invited Lawrence Krauss to do it and I, I didn't want to do it I don't think that I'm going to be a very good public speaker. That was the that's that's really the the reason, um, and being the moderator was quite interesting. That was, uh, I, and I thought, well, I'll see what it's like to <laughs> actually get up in front of so many people. Yeah, uh, and I obviously I survived the experience. But, you you did a uh, much better job than your predecessor at the previous debates. Uh, um, you were actually a successful yeah, moderator. <laughs> that, that, that's that's what I heard. Yeah, that, you know. Um, that may be partly just because uh, I had had some conversations with the City Bible Forum, the people that were organising mm-hmm. the event, and we kind of worked and discussed with them what they wanted the moderator to do. And then as far as I could, I stuck to it. I still made some mistakes. When I got up there, because uh, I was so nervous, I forgot to start timing. When um, so, so was it Bill went first? Is that right, or did Lawrence go first? I can't I, remember who went first. I think Bill but went first was, I forgot to start the, the clock, so I had no idea how long they'd been going. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it, I think it was quite a successful evening, and over the course of the discussion, uh, both of the speakers got a chance to, um, to pres- I, I think, to successfully present some of their views. Mm. So. Was was there was there points where you just kind of proverbially sitting on your hands and wanting to, to jump in as a as like a third voice? Um, not not really. Yeah. Uh, there are there are a lot. I mean, as is always the case, <laughs> there were lots of points where I might have interrupted either one of them and said, "But what right. about this? What about that?" and so on. But I wasn't. I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. I, what I was actually focused on was trying to make the event work, um, rather than worrying too much about you know what would I have said if I was standing in this. Yeah, 
I, I think I, I part of me was like I, I was hoping you would you would jump in. You, you know, on both sides, um, there there was a lot of times where I was like, oh, you know, a, a moderated you know kind of middle position would have been. Uh, would have been helpful, but they, yeah, that would have been outside of your prerogative as a moderator. Yeah, so, totally understand. Uh, but I, I always wonder when the moderators are, are so like such peacekeepers. If sometimes in the back of their head they're just like, "But I want to say this." Uh, just, right, well, I believe that was part of the problem with the um, first yeah. two moderators that they had no such ambition. So. Yes, yeah, there was definitely no filter uh, on some of those. Um, now, some of your some of your work. So let's let's kind of um, gear more towards um, into your work and and, a, and away from uh, the the debate or some of your um, your fellow um, uh, atheistic thinkers. Um, I know that you've written some objections to, for example, the Kalam uh, cosmological argument, uh, Planinga's modal ontological argument. Um, I'm wondering. If you could, uh, and and I'm you know this isn't going to be a point counter point. I'm not trying yeah. to refute you or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. If you could spell out um, maybe just some of the 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 major objections uh, or reasons why maybe not objections reasons why you don't think they're compelling. Um, actually, actually, before we do that, can um, I know that you 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 are strong on kind of making the difference between um, you know is an argument invalid or bad uh, and just why and, and th- that and it just not being compelling just it's not yeah. a compelling argument so maybe explain that first what's what's kind of the the distinction between that uh okay so what's the point of talking about arguments in in this context uh what properties should an argument have in order for it to count as a good argument and something that's worth talking about in this context. So, so this is, I should say, my my views on this topic and my views about the arguments have developed and changed over time. So, uh, there's lots of things that I've written about the arguments that, while I don't think they're they're necessarily mistaken, they don't seem very important to me anymore. Okay, so so the way that I like to think about it is this. We've got two, we, let's imagine kind of two ideal participants in our conversation, a theist and a naturalist. And let's suppose that they've got very well developed views. So there's a whole lot of things that the naturalist believes and there's a whole lot of things that the theist believes. And so it turns out there's lots of things that they agree on and there's lots of things that they disagree on. Now, because of that, because there's lots and lots of propositions in play, there'll be lots of arguments that we can construct that they will disagree about as well, right? Because one will think certain arguments, uh, let's just focus on the valid arguments, right? Mm-hmm. So there'll be lots of valid arguments that we can make on either side. Uh There'll be lots of them that one will judge to be sound and other will, the other will judge to be unsound just because they disagree about the propositions involved, just because they disagree about the premises. Drawing attention to those arguments is a complete waste of time, right? Because we already know we've got these, these views. They disagree about which propositions are true and which propositions are false. In virtue of that, it follows that they disagree about for a long list of arguments, which ones are sound 
and which ones are, amongst the valid arguments that disagree in that way. So since what we're interested in really is who's got the better view, looking at the arguments, looking at those arguments which tell us nothing, uh, it doesn't advance the conversation in any way. What sort of arguments would advance the conversation? Well, one thing that would advance the conversation is if you could show for one of the views that it's inconsistent. That would be an advance. That would force the person on that side to have to change their view. So my controversial opinion is that's the only kind of argument that's really going to be interesting. Um, and so when, I've got, when I'm presented with an argument these days, what I do is I say, okay, you've, you're presenting this argument for your view. Let's think about the kind of corresponding argument that the person on the other side might present and then let's just consider whether either of these arguments is really giving us a reason to favour one view over the other. So I can illustrate this maybe if we talk about one of the particular arguments now. So we talk about the Kalam argument. Yeah, so would you, so, do you think it'd be fair, uh, just before we go right to the Kalam, do you think it'd be fair to say um, that an, a, a particular argument like the Kalam, which we'll get to, uh, might be helpful for me in justifying my own belief to myself um, but when when I'm uh, maybe trying to engage in a debate with someone, maybe a naturalist, uh, the arguments that will move the conversation along are uh, more more arguments on the, <coughs> arguments on the offensive, maybe arguments that, like you said, that are trying to show uh, maybe the other side is is inconsistent, rather than trying to prove to them from my starting point that that it, that my position is true. Do so I don't think that. An argument like that, an argument where you accept all the premises and you accept the conclusion, that that does anything to that that that, that does anything towards justifying your view or strengthening your view. The question just is: Is it reasonable for you to accept this particular set right. of claims? Right. Right. And we know in advance. If, so you know, think of it as there's hundreds of thousands of claims that that things that you believe are true. There are literally millions of arguments that we can make that will be valid, that have got true premises and a true conclusion. What's the point of doing that, right? What what would any of those arguments show, right? What's interesting is questions like, um, are there better views than the one you've got? Um, are there reasons to think that you're mistaken about particular claims, that you're believing, but that's really related to the better view. Could mm. you improve your view by changing um, some of your beliefs? Mm. How might you improve your view? Well, you might be able to explain more things. You might reduce the commitments, the theoretical commitments that you've got. Um, you might be able to give better <laughs> explanations of things. There's various ways that you can improve your view. Uh, and that's kind of what's interesting. So I think that the, the folk, I actually think this is the burden of a couple of things that I've published recently, that, the, that by and large the focus on arguments is a mistake. It's not a mistake if, so, to, I mean, to take to take an example, if you really think that your opponent is committed to a bunch of claims and those claims are inconsistent, then it's worth saying so because they might not have noticed. And mm -hmm. if their view is inconsistent, it's bad in a way that they should want to do something about it. Um, but many arguments that people put forward in philosophy of religion don't have this property. People already know that people on the other side don't accept some of the premises. Well, now what's the, what's the point, right? 
Mm. We already know that we disagree about a bunch of claims, right? So I can easily make a contradiction out of your view and mine. We can just pick something where I believe P and you believe not P and put them together, and that contradiction emerges. It's no surprise that uh, I can make an argument for a conclusion that I accept if, amongst the premises, I include claims that you don't believe. That would be very easy to do. Because remember that for an argument to be valid, it just is for the premises and the negation of the conclusion to form an inconsistent set. So there's a very tight connection between inconsistency and the validity of arguments. Right. Okay, so that's the that's the kind of short story. <laughs> so let's so let, you uh, but, you wanted but, to go into the clam as an example. So let's yeah, let's yeah, use that so, as an example. Yeah. Okay. So so we're thinking about well the way that I'm going to cast this. We're thinking about the causal structure of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to just take for granted that that there's a kind of causal structure to reality, and then we can ask what it looks like. Uh, some people think there's an infinite causal regress. Let's just throw that to one side. Right. right? And suppose that somehow or other we've gotten rid of that consideration. If there isn't a causal regress, then there's going to be a first cause and a first causing, right? because that's the other option. And whether you're theist or a naturalist, you can think that there's a first cause, right? There's an initial um, causal, there's an initial causing, there's something doing the causing, there's some effect of the cause, and so on, and you get the rest of causal reality. If you're a theist, you think that, I mean, I'll suppose this may not be quite exactly right, that God's the first cause and the first effect is the initial state of the universe. Mm -hmm. If you're a naturalist, you're going to think the initial cause uh, is something like the initial singularity. It's the first, you know, the first state of the universe. Now we have a, we have an argument. Uh, so let me give you the Kalam argument. Now, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning to exist. The universe began to exist, so there's a cause of the universe's beginning to exist. Uh, that's the Kalam syllogism, and that's what I'm focusing on here. Yeah. Okay, here's another argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning to exist. God began to exist, so there's a cause of God's beginning to exist. Now, everybody knows theists are going to object to that argument. What are they going to say? Well, and in particular, here's a question. If something's causally first, does it begin to exist? Because right, I need to understand what we mean by begins to exist when we're going to evaluate the argument. Right? That was a key expression in the argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. If it's beginning to exist, the universe begins to exist or God begins to exist. Right, so my question is, do causally first things begin to exist or not? Right, and and most Christians um, are going to say no. No, right, they're going to say, so what was wrong with that argument was that causally first things do not begin to exist. In particular, God doesn't begin to exist, right? It's true that whatever begins to exist has a cause, 
but the causally first thing doesn't. Okay. The naturalist thinks that the causally first thing is the first state of the universe. Does it begin to exist? Answer, no, because causally first things don't begin to exist. Right? So given that the theist is going to say, commit to the causally first things don't begin to exist, the naturalist is free to say the universe doesn't begin to exist, even though the past is finite. Because the theist said, you know, the causal past is finite, it begins, but the thing that it begins with doesn't begin to exist. Right? Right. So, so the argument's getting us nowhere. It's not deciding between the two views because when you push it, um, it's going to turn out that the two views are on a par with respect to the considerations that are brought up in the argument. Right, so that's my that that's what I think is that's what I these days think is the main objection to the Kalam argument. Right. I, I mean, it doesn't I, give you a reason to prefer theism to naturalism. It actually doesn't give you a reason to do that. Right. I've actually. Uh, I mean, I, you don't really know me from Adam, but I'm, I I I reject the Kalam for close to a same reason. Um, more so just that uh, any of the spade work that the that the theist wants it to do happens long after the conclusion happens. Um, if I mean the it, it seems like the the naturalists um, if, if if they can agree with the entire argument and say yes there is a cause of the universe full stop that's all that's all the argument gets you and normally the theist or the apologist. Um, has to do some more spade work and say, well, um, you know, what what type of thing can can uh, accomplish the role of a first cause, and so they need to do a whole bunch of other work on top of that. So when whenever I whenever I hear these debates and there's naturalists and there's and, and theists kind of debating and going back and forth about causal structures and and if the principle yeah. of sufficient reason is, I, I I'm kind of with you. I just want to say, well. That just just stop. That's pointless. You both can agree on the conclusion and, and just really uh, go to where the the meat of the discussion is, which which isn't the kalam. It's all of the inferences that the theist wants to draw from the kalam. Okay, so I partly agree with you. I think that it's true that if you could get out the conclusion that there's a cause of the universe is beginning to exist, it's going to take some work to get to the conclusion that God is the cause. Right. But I don't agree with you that naturalists can happily say there's a cause of the universe that's beginning to exist. Because by the universe here, we just mean natural reality, right. all of it, whatever it is. And I think, by definition, the naturalist thinks that causal reality just is natural reality. It exhausts it. So they cannot. It's like you can't think there's a cause of causal reality. That's incoherent because... Right. Uh, the cause would have to be part of causal reality that causes and affects the distinct existences. So you can't think that there's a cause of causal reality. Naturalists can't think there's a cause of natural reality because they think that natural reality just is all of causal reality. So um, naturalists are going to... But, but there, it's not like there's a difference here. Theists agree. There can't be a cause of causal reality. Right. right? That's impossible. Right. So So... Um, you won't get any mileage in the debate between theists and naturalists out of the Kalam argument. But now let's 
pretend we can entertain a kind of um, impossible hypothetical. <laughs> Even if you could, as you say, there'd be lots of work still to do. I think, though, that if you could show that there had to be a non-natural cause of the universe, you'd be a long way down the track, right? I mean, you can, you can imagine... Um, you'd, certainly, you'd certainly have shown there was something wrong with naturalism. Right? Naturalists would have to revise their position if right. you could show that. You might still have an argument with Zoroastrians and all <laughs> kinds of other people about exactly what the non-natural causes are, but, but naturalism would be... As an argument against naturalism, that would be fatal, right? Right. To, to come up to, to reach the conclusion that there's a non-natural cause, right. natural reality. So that's, that's why I'm resisting that. That's why, <laughs> that's why I think that's what's important about the argument because that would be a threat to my view. Right. right. What, what do you think about um, um, kind of arguments – more like arguments from arguments where maybe the Kalam, um, I mean, let's not use the Kalam because I'm not even a fan of the Kalam. Uh, maybe, you know, a modal ontological argument or, or um, you know, an argument from fine tune. I mean, pick your argument, whatever it is. Maybe the argument itself isn't telling. Um, but what about the claim that, well, um, the, the, it, it's more plausible on theism or it's more plausible on naturalism or uh, that, that it might not prove its case, but maybe it lends a, a little bit of weight, you know, on one side of the scale or the other. Right. So, so I prefer to just recast this as a question about, okay, we've got some developed version of theism, we've got some developed version of natural and what's naturalism, let's compare them. Is one better than the other? Which one has the greater theoretical commitments? Which one explains things better? Which one fits all of the data better? And now that is a kind of cumulative question. You've got to look at all of the data. So we go through and we look to see, okay, is either of them, does either of them have an advantage with respect to explaining why there's anything at all? Does either of them have an advantage um, explaining the apparent fine-tuning? Does either of them have an advantage accounting for morality? Does either of them have an advantage? And so on. This is just... The, kind of, the argument of my little book, The Best Argument Against God, is just that when you do this, it actually turns out that naturalism comes out ahead. Uh, maybe, right? <laughs> I mean, I I'm not very... I'm not, I'm not strongly wedded to that conclusion, but I, um, in the sense that if it turned out that you just can't do this evaluation, that would be fine mm. by me. But to the extent that you can do it, it looks to me as though naturalism is going to come out slightly ahead. But that is just doing what you're talking about when you're talking about a cumulative argument, except it's not set out as an argument now because right. what we're really interested in, the question that we really want to know the answer to is which is the better view? So what I think we should do is we should talk about that directly and we should just compare the views and say, okay, what is the explanation of X, Y, and Z on this view? What is the explanation on this view? In most cases, I think it turns out that the explanation is the same, just as we saw with the the example of why is there anything at all, ultimately there are only two ways of answering that question. One of them is because there had to be, and you can, you know, you can, you can um, run that in a naturalist or a theist way, or there isn't a reason, right? Right. It's just brute contingency. So it's either brute necessity or brute contingency. They're your options, but you've got them on both views, so there's not going to be any advantage. 
more controversially, I'm going to argue for that for nearly everything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that there's no advantage one way or the other. Right. Um, so you, so um, that was kind of your views on the clump. What about? Um, I, I'm I'm not sure how much I want to go down uh, this this uh, this rabbit trail, but uh, I did I did have a few people ask um, if you could uh, just briefly touch on um, some of the work that you've done on on planning as modal um, ontological argument. I know I know it's it the argument itself is is opaque and convoluted for for a lot of people, anyways. Um, but maybe if you could just briefly touch on um, some of your major thoughts about it. Okay, so the argument itself is actually fairly simple, but it involves some complicated definitions. Mm-hmm. So planting it introduces the idea <coughs> of an unsurpassably great being. right? And the premise in his argument is that it's possible that there's an unsurpassably great being. Now, one of the things about an unsurpassably great being is that it's, I mean, among its properties, planting stipulates that it's going to be necessarily existent and necessarily omnipotent, necessarily omniscient, necessarily perfectly good. Given that stipulation, an unsurpassably great being will be necessarily an unsurpassably great being, right? Because it has those properties mm-hmm. of necessity and they're the properties that are characteristic of an unsurpassably great being. So the premise of the argument is just it's possible that necessarily there's an unsurpassably great being. That's you can think of the premise as that's what it says. Now from modal logic, uh, assuming that we go with what's most people's favourite modal system. If it's possible that it's necessary that P, then it's necessary that P. And if it's necessary that P, then P. Right? So from possibly necessarily P, you get out both necessarily P and P. If it's possible that necessarily there's an unsurpassably great being, then there is an unsurpassably great being and necessarily so. Okay, that's the argument. Yeah. Right, so it's, it's actually not a particularly complicated argument, uh, I don't think. The premise of the argument is that it's possible that there's an unsurpassably great being. I'll go back to the that version, remembering that there's an unsurpassably great being, just in case necessarily there's an unsurpassably great being. So it's possible that there's an unsurpassably great being. But Plantinga himself recognises that you might think that it's possible that there's no unsurpassably great being. And it follows from that, by very similar steps of reasoning, that there isn't an unsurpassably great being, and there couldn't be. So we have these two parallel arguments. At that point, you might think, uh, mm, uh, this argument isn't getting us anywhere. What Plantinus says is, even though you can't use this argument um, to win against the naturalist say, the person who says there's no unsurpassable great being. You can take it from this argument that it shows that it's reasonable to accept the conclusion. Right? So it's a demonstration that you can reasonably believe that there's an unsurpassable great being. And that's, in that sense, he thinks, as he says in The Nature of Necessity of 1974, it's a victorious argument. Mm. 
Now, I've written a fair bit about this. In fact, I was writing some more stuff about this just the other day as part of my chapter on ontological, on ontological arguments generally. I think that he's wrong about that. If you thought that it wasn't reasonable to believe that there's an unsurpassable great being, you're also going to think that it's not reasonable to believe that it's possible that there's an unsurpassable great being because these claims just hang together. They just swing together, right? So, so if, I'm, if I'm someone who thinks that it's not reasonable to believe that there's an unsurpassable great being, you're not going to persuade me with this argument. Moreover, if I'm a neutral person, right, so I'm undecided about whether it's reasonable or not, there's an argument on each side, one of which says that it's reasonable to believe one way, one of which says that it's reasonable to believe the other way. And if I, if I run arguments from what's unreasonable, I can see if I thought it was unreasonable to believe that there's an unsurpassable great being, I believe that it was unreasonable to suppose that it's possible that there's such a being. And likewise on the other side for the, there not being an unsurpassable great being. So it seems to me this argument, since it won't move a neutral person, uh, it's not giving us a reason to favour either the view that it's reasonable or the view that it's not reasonable. Right? So, so you'll you'll get used to this pattern of arguing, right, um, on my part because it's the way I argue a lot. So, I mean, one other thing I should say. I granted from the beginning before I ever started writing on this topic that you needn't be unreasonable in supposing that God exists. Right? Plant, one of Plantinga's animating concerns right through his career has been to try to persuade people on the other side, naturalists, that it's not unreasonable to believe that God exists. Right? But I started from that position. So um, I don't, I'm not in the, the in, in that sense, um, I don't need planting this argument anyway in order to embrace the kind of one of the big conclusions that he wanted to get to. It seems to me um, that reason is distributed pretty evenly over the people of the earth. There's all kinds of weird things that reasonable people reasonably believe. Right. And, uh, you know, anyway... But, but that's straying a little bit from the current do, topic of the modal ontological argument. Do you think? Do you think on planning his argument though? There's um, even though there's there's kind of these parallel arguments between it's possible um, yeah. that God exists and it's not that there's kind of a different level of burden uh, on one over the other. So the the person who needs to show that it's possible that God just really needs to show that it's not logically incoherent, whereas the other side would actually need to make a positive case. Um, in order to say something's not possible, they might need to say, well, it's it's actually impossible. Well, so one view says it's possible that there's an unsurpassably great being, just talking about our world. It's right. possible. And the other one's saying it's possible that there isn't. It's possible that there isn't. It doesn't look like there's a particularly greater burden of proof on one side than there is on the other. Um, it, it seems to me, I guess that it's, I mean, I don't like talking about burden of proof 
it's it's not gonna we, we aren't getting a reason here so we're interested in is there an unsurpassably great being um, it looks as though it's possible there is it's possible there isn't uh somehow you know why favor one over the other particularly when we know that there's this inference that's going to get you from it's possible to it is the case right right um it doesn't i don't i don't see that there's any um well i don't like talking about burden of proof anyway i think the thing is you take the views and you compare them Mm. right you try to see if one's better than the other and if you can't do it then you just agree to disagree because there's nothing else to do uh, yeah. If you can compare them, and if it turns out that one's got an advantage, then if you want to stick with the one that's got the disadvantage, you need to do some work. You need to find some new evidence or right. um, or, or something like that. Or you need to do some kind of reassessment, maybe modify the view a bit. Because that's, that's another thing about this discussion maybe I should mention here. And if you imagine a particular version of naturalism, a particular version of theism, and let's suppose that the fears can show that the particular version of naturalism is inconsistent, kind of the best possible um, criticism that you can make of mm-hmm. the view. That doesn't mean that theism is going to turn out to be the preferred position, because there's lots and lots of natural naturalist positions. Naturalists might just move a little bit, and maybe the criticism won't apply anymore. Uh, so what you can hope to do by showing that, say, a particular version of theism is inconsistent even, which would be, might sound like it's a big thing, may well not be very much because there's lots and lots of versions of theism and you can just tinker with the view a little bit. And there are, I mean, as you well know, mm. there are many disputes between theists. There are, in, within philosophy, there are dozens, hundreds, probably thousands of different theistic positions. Right. All right, we will pick up next time where we left off in this discussion with Dr. Graham Oppie. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to send us an email at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or join us on the Freedthinker Facebook page. Thank you again for joining us, and we will see you next time. Good night, and God bless.